If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, we're continuing in our study. If you're visiting with us, we've been going through the book of Revelation verse by verse, and we find ourselves in chapter 12. We are more than halfway through the book of Revelation. The title of this chapter is Spiritual Warfare, Satan Attacks God's People. The Bible says very explicitly that we are in a perpetual battle. Have you ever felt attacked by Satan? The Bible says that the Christian life is a battleground, not a playground. In fact, the Bible uses imagery such as the fact that we are soldiers of Jesus Christ. We are soldiers who are engaged in a battle. We are not tourists. We are a battleship rather than a cruise ship. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians today don't realize that this spiritual battle wages ongoingly in our life. And Satan's goal is if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he wants to blind you to the truth of the gospel so that ultimately you will die in your sins, as Jesus said in John chapter 8. If you're a Christian, he changes his tactics. His tactic is to basically hinder you in your Christian life. He doesn't want you to become effective. He doesn't want you to grow. He wants you to be a lukewarm Christian. In fact, if you're a lukewarm Christian that Jesus mentions in Revelation chapter 3, you're neither hot nor cold, Satan is not going to mess with you. He doesn't mess with Christians that are on the fence spiritually because he knows that you're not going to cut a swath in his kingdom. He's only going to go after people that are committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, that are walking unashamedly, unabashedly, and preaching the truth of God. And Satan often attacks us in one of three ways as Christians. He tempts us, he knows our weaknesses. Satan sows seeds of false doctrine in the church in order to derail people, and then he also persecutes Christians, and that's really the theme of this section in chapter 12 is we're going to see how Satan launches an all-out attack during the tribulation period in this spiritual warfare against the Jewish people and against Christians. Now, let me give you the big picture of where we are at. If you'll notice the next slide, you will notice here, go to the next one. You will notice here the seventh trumpet. John mentioned this in chapter 11. And when the seventh trumpet is blown, that unleashes the seven bowl judgments. That's in chapter 11. But the seven bowl judgments do not actually transpire until we get to chapter 16. And so there is a gap between chapter 11, where the seventh trumpet is blown and it releases the bold judgments, but the bold judgments do not happen until we get to chapter 16. And so there is this parenthesis, there is this interlude, there is this respite. To give you a word picture, it's kind of like when you're watching a movie, and as the narrative is flowing in the movie, you take your remote and you hit the rewind button, and it brings you back to a part in the movie that you want to review. Well, that's exactly what Revelation chapter 12, the chapter we're in, is doing. It is an interlude, it is a parenthesis, and it is a respite. It's not advancing the narrative of the book of Revelation, but it's taking us back in time, 
And it's showing us that during the tribulation period, there's going to be massive spiritual warfare. Satan is going to launch an all-out attack against God's people. Now, as we look at this spiritual warfare, there are seven players that are involved in the warfare. First of all, there is the woman. Secondly, there is the child. Thirdly, there is the dragon. Fourthly, there is Michael the archangel. Fifthly, there are the saints of God. They're mentioned in chapter 12, what we're looking at this morning. There are two other players, and that would be number six, the Antichrist. He is the beast coming out of the sea. And then, of course, you have player number seven, which would be the beast coming out of the earth. That would be the false prophet, the henchman that is going to promote the Antichrist. John will be looking at those two players, number six and seven, next week. But for this morning, we want to look at these five players that are involved in chapter 12 in this spiritual warfare. Let's look at player number one, the woman. Notice, if you will, verse one of chapter 12, it says a great, and that word in the Greek is mega. You know, when you go to McDonald's, they ask you, do you want to supersize your fry? And of course, my answer is always what? Yes. He says, I saw a great, a mega sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and her head, a crown of 12 stars. Now, the question here in this first player being the woman, who is the woman? Well, the Bible tells us very clearly that the woman here symbolizes the nation of Israel. How do we know this? Well, we know this from the Old Testament. If you hearken back to Genesis chapter 37, verse 9, you will notice here that Joseph had a dream. And you remember, Joseph was somewhat one of the founding fathers of the Jewish people, and he told his brothers, listen, I had another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. So the sun, the moon, and the stars here represent Joseph's brothers. They were the foundation of Israel, and they were bowing down to Joseph. And as you know in the story in Genesis, that's exactly what happened. And so, if you look at the next diagram, this is how it plays out in terms of the woman. The woman here, at player number one, is Israel. Jacob would represent the sun. The moon that the woman is resting on would represent Jacob's wives, through whom he had the 12 sons or the 12 tribes of Israel, who are represented by the 12 stars, the halo above her head. And so the first person or player involved in this spiritual warfare is the woman, and the woman represents Israel. Now, there are those today that would try to say that the woman doesn't represent Israel, but rather the woman represents the church. And what they argue is that the church has replaced Israel. You see, God had his people in the Old Testament, the Jewish people, and God worked through the Jewish people in the Old Testament. But because the Jewish people disobeyed God and basically turned to idolatry and ultimately rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah, according to this view, God has permanently set aside the nation of Israel and he's no longer working through national Israel. Now he's saving Jewish people, but he's not working through the nation of Israel. And what they argue is all the promises that God made to Israel in the Old Testament about a land, 
about reigning in the millennial, all those promises, according to this view, have been fulfilled in the church. And so the church is made up of Jew and Gentile, and we are the spiritual Israel of God. We're not the literal Israel of God. We're the spiritual Israel. We're children of Abraham by faith. That's called replacement theology. And so they try to argue that the woman here is not national Israel, rather it is the church. But listen, in the Bible, the church is never referred to as a woman. The church is never referred to as the wife of God. The church is always referred to as the bride of Jesus Christ. And so this is not the church, rather this is national Israel. The woman represents Israel, and as we're going to see as we go further down the text here, Satan is going to launch an all-out attack during the tribulation against Israel nationally because he hates the Jewish people. Why does he hate the Jewish people? Because it is the Jewish people that brought forth the Messiah. And ultimately, if Satan cannot get at Jesus, you know what he does? He turns against Jesus' people, and he persecutes them. And listen, if you're a Christian, Satan's going to persecute you. He's going to come after you. Now, I'm not one to believe that there's a demon behind every bush. There are some Christians that they look for a demon behind everything. And the Bible says we have to be careful that we don't look for demonic powers behind everything that happens in our life. Did you know that if Satan did not exist, we still would struggle with sin monumentally? And the reason why is because we have the flesh. We have our fallen nature. You say, well, how do you know when it's Satan attacking me, and how do I know when it's the flesh, my fallen nature, tempting me? Oftentimes, we don't know. There are times where maybe we feel like we're clearly under demonic oppression, but a lot of times we can't distinguish, is it the devil or is it the flesh? And in the end, it really doesn't matter because we're called to resist the devil, we're called to resist the flesh, and to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, Again, if you're a committed Christian, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, there is a distinction between being a Christian and being a disciple. A disciple is a Christ follower. A disciple is a learner. It is someone who puts the teachings of Christ into practice. A Christian is someone who's been saved, but maybe they're nominal in their faith. They have professed Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They're forgiven of their sins, past, present, and future. But you know what? They're infant Christians. They're what 1 Corinthians 3 calls baby Christians, milk Christians. They're not growing. And it's okay to be a milk Christian, but here's the problem. When you stay there spiritually and you don't progress in your Christian life and you don't go from being a Gerber Christian to an Outback Steak Christian, what happens is you're not going to be grounded in your walk. And the landscape of Christianity today is littered with infantile Christians who are not growing in their faith. And so the first player in this warfare that's going to go on during the tribulation is the woman, and the woman represents Israel. Satan is going to attack Israel just like he's going to attack you and I. The second player is the child, the child. Notice, if you will, verse 2, and she, that is the woman who represents Israel, was pregnant, and she cried out being in labor and in pain to give birth. Now, I have three daughters, and I was there for all of their deliveries, and so I know, not experientially, 
But I know in seeing my wife what it is to go through labor, and she reminds me periodically that men cannot handle labor. And that's probably true because our threshold for pain. I said, well, hun, can you give me an analogy of what it feels like to give birth? I can't tell you in the pulpit what she told me. Not that it's bad. It's just probably bathroom humor, and I don't want to share that with you. But she said it's very painful. And so Israel here is seen as a pregnant woman on the verge of giving birth to a child. Now the question is, who is the child? Well, verse 5 tells us of chapter 12, and she gave birth to a son, a male, who is going to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And so we obviously understand that The woman here represents Israel, and Israel here is giving birth to a child, and the child is Jesus. You see, Jesus came from the nation of Israel. Abraham was the father of the Jewish race, and if you look at Jesus' genealogy, you could trace his genealogy all the way back to Israel. That's why Satan historically has hated Israel, is because ultimately they are the people of God. God chose the Jewish people to bring forth the Messiah who would be the Savior of the world. And if Satan cannot successfully defeat Christ, he's going to turn against God's people, which would be the Jewish people, and the church as well. Now, he mentions here five things about Jesus being the child. First of all, he mentions the incarnation of Christ. That speaks of him becoming human. It says in verse 4, and she gave birth to a son, a male. The fact that she gave birth means Jesus took on human flesh. That's his incarnation. Secondly, it mentions the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ implicitly. In verse 5, and her child was caught up to God. You say, well, how does that refer to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ? Well, before Jesus can be caught up to heaven, he had to first live, he had to die, and then he had to rise from the dead. Thirdly, it mentions the ascension of Christ. In verse 5, and her child was caught up to God. Do you remember in Acts chapter 1, Jesus left up in heaven and the disciples were looking at him? And then fourth, it mentions the coronation of Christ. It says in verse 5, and her child was caught up to God, and here it is, and to his throne. When you sit on a throne, that means you rule as a king. And so Jesus is seated on his throne in his coronation, ruling as king. Now he's going to come back, and that's the fifth thing he shows us about Jesus, the return of Christ, verse 5, who is going to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That speaks of Jesus coming back and setting up his millennial kingdom. And so the child here in this spiritual warfare represents Jesus Christ, and we see the five-fold work of what Jesus Christ is going to do. He is the child that Satan is going to go after. And we know that historically, Satan has gone after Jesus. One example would be at Christmas time. We studied the Christmas narrative. We know that Herod was used by Satan in order to destroy the Christ child, but was unsuccessful. And so the woman, player number one, represents Israel. Player number two is the child, which represents Jesus. Israel gives birth to Jesus. But you know what? It says in John chapter one, Jesus came to his own, but his own received him not. There are a lot of Jewish people today that reject Jesus as their Messiah. They see him as a political revolutionary. They see him as a Jewish zealot. 
They see him as a prophet or a rabbi, but they do not see him as the God-man. And that's exactly what Jesus is. As you know, I go to the hospital every Tuesday as a part-time chaplain in order to use that opportunity to share my faith because when people are hurting, they're often more prone to listen to the message of Christ. And so this week, I went into a room, and there was a middle-aged man laying there with a shaved head, and I said, I'm a chaplain here, and we offer prayer. Is that something you're interested in? He said, hey. He said, I'm Jewish. He said, I'll take all the prayers I can get. And so I began to engage him, and I said, why are you here? He said, well, I'm getting knee surgery, I think, for the fifth or sixth time. And I said, well, what happened? He said, well, listen, I was a cop in New York City. And he said, some kid ran into my car going 90 miles an hour, and he said, here's the kicker. This kid had been in and out of jail 30 times. And he said, that's the philosophy there. They catch him and they release him. They catch him and they release him. And so I said, well, what do you think about de Blasio and Cuomo? Of course, we won't go into that conversation that I had with them. But at the end, I said, well, let me ask you a question. As a Jewish man, are you aware that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament? I said, have you ever read Isaiah chapter 53? It's the suffering servant passage. If you ever witness to a Jewish person, write it down. Take them to Isaiah 53. It is one of the most comprehensive passages that talks about how Jesus would die and he would actually be the savior of the world and he would take care of our sins. He said, well, I've never read that passage before. He wasn't hostile to me, but he wasn't necessarily open. And so I didn't push anymore. And so Jesus fulfills Old Testament passages like Isaiah 53, Psalm 22. There are many passages in the Old Testament. And so what's going to happen during the tribulation is Satan is going to go after the Christ child. And he can't get to Jesus, so what he's going to do is he's going to attack the woman, which is Israel. And again, I want to remind you, this isn't just in the future. We are dealing with spiritual warfare now. We are in a battle. It's an invisible battle. Ephesians 6 says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, powers, principalities, against world forces of this darkness. And you know what the Bible says? We got to take our stand. And we often forget that we're in a spiritual battle because out of sight, out of mind, we don't see it. We think our politicians are the ultimate enemy. Our politicians are not the ultimate enemy. We think those people on our job that are pagan, that cuss all the time and tell dirty jokes, or our family members that are totally broken and dysfunctional, we think they're the enemy, but in reality, the enemy is Satan. And we have to remember that we are in this battle, and as Christians, if we're not committed to fight the battle and we're lukewarm, we're not going to be able to take our stand. And as I said, Satan's not going to mess with you if you're not a disciple of Jesus Christ. He's not going to interfere with you because you are not basically a threat to his kingdom. Have you noticed, by the way, whenever you watch movies today, whether it's on television or the theaters, have you noticed, and this has been going on for some time now, that they always use Jesus' name in profanity. Isn't it interesting that they never use the name Buddha? Oh, Buddha. Oh, Muhammad. Or this, that, or the other. Oh, Allah. 
why is it they only curse the name of God and Jesus Christ? You think that's coincidental? It is not coincidental. I was watching some show the other day, and this guy was bragging about how when he goes to hell, he's going to be partying down there. And I looked at my wife, and I said, you see how shrewd Satan is. He's making things seem like there's no consequences, and it really is not going to matter. So player number one is the woman. That represents what? Israel. Player number two is the child. That represents Jesus. Player number three, this is the dragon. This one gets a little bit more complicated, but once I unpack it, you'll see it's not that difficult. Verses three and four. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon. Now we know from chapter 12, verse nine, that the red dragon here is Satan, And he's red because of bloodshed and war. And notice this red dragon had seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven crowns. This speaks of the political structure that Satan is going to work through during the tribulation period. And in verse 4, his tail swept away a third of the stars. This would be fallen angels who followed Satan in his rebellion, and they now have become his demons, his minions. There's probably millions of them. And notice they were hurled down to the earth. And in verse 4, when they were hurled down to the earth, it says the dragon stood before the woman, that would be Israel, who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, here it is, he might devour her child. You see, during the tribulation period, Satan is going to go after the descendants of Israel. He's going to attack the Jewish people. Now, let me break down for you this seven heads and ten horns. If you go to the next slide, let me show you this as it plays out. Here is the woman. She's clothed in the sun, And uh, she's pregnant with a child. She represents Israel. Israel gave birth to Jesus. And you'll notice the tail of the dragon. There are the the stars, the demons that in eternity past he took with them. And notice here, the dragon had seven heads. You may not be able to see them clearly, so I numbered them. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Now, what are these seven heads and the seven crowns? You probably can't see them, but they do have crowns on their head. What do these seven heads and seven crowns represent? Well, they represent seven world empires. And watch this. These world empires, we can substantiate this through secular history. These world empires all have tried to stomp out the Jewish people. In fact, the Jews were under Egypt. That would be one head. And the crown would represent the world rulers, Pharaoh. You got Assyria. They took Israel into captivity. Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. The Medes and the Persians under Cyrus. Greece under Alexander the Great. And then you have Rome. That's Rome 1. So you have all six of these that have tried to destroy Israel and prevent the Messiah from coming, and they've been unsuccessful. You have one more head on this dragon, and that is Rome number 2. You say, why Rome number two? Because Antichrist is going to rule over a revived Roman Empire. See, Rome split up into all the states of Europe, Western Europe, and Antichrist is going to come out of that area. Some people think the Antichrist is going to be Jewish. I don't believe he's going to be Jewish. I think he's going to be a Gentile. He's going to come out of Europe, and he is going to be the last attempt. This is the dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and by the way, the ten horns represent the ten rulers that are going to rule with Antichrist during the tribulation period to stomp out Israel 
and to annihilate her. You say, why does Satan want to do that? Because listen, Jesus came out of Israel, and Jesus is going to come back for Israel. Remember, during the tribulation period, God is going to preserve a remnant of Jews. If you read Zechariah chapter 12 and other portions in Ezekiel, God is going to purge two-thirds of the rebels in relation to the Jews. Two-thirds of the Jewish people during the tribulation, God's going to purge them out. They're going to die. They're rebels. They're not true followers of Jesus. And he's going to preserve a remnant during that time. And here's the point of this, this dragon with seven heads and ten crowns and seven horns. Here's the point of this. Satan, during this final form of a world empire, is going to work through the Antichrist in order to stamp out the people of God. He's going to try to stamp out the 144,000. He's going to try to stamp out those Jews that are going to follow Jesus Christ. And as we're going to see later, God is going to actually preserve a remnant of Jews during that time. And so there's coming this political battle. Now, you know what this tells us? And this is very important, that Satan often works through government structures. He works through world leaders. And listen, if you don't think he's working in Washington, I think we all know it is a foregone conclusion that Satan's got his hand in this country. Satan's going to use America, and he's going to move us towards persecution, because this is exactly what Satan does. He's worked through all those world empires, and all of them have tried to stamp out the people of God, and they've been unsuccessful. And he's going to do it one more time through one final form of world government, and it's going to be through the Antichrist. Now, he's going to ostensibly seem like one who wants to make peace because he's going to sign a peace treaty with Israel, but he's going to turn on Israel. God's going to purge out the rebels, and what's going to happen is he's going to preserve a remnant that are going to enter into the millennial kingdom. But Satan's attempting to do that, and listen, he's going to do it in our time. He's going to do it through our government. Satan is working in America, no doubt about it. And listen, with the hands changing over in government, you and I know that persecution is going to amp up in this country. I'm not saying it's going to happen tomorrow. And you know what's in our favor right now? The fact that we have the Supreme Court, which is primarily conservative. But if they stack the Supreme Court, I can promise you, that they're going to turn against the church. And you know what the primary issue is going to be over? Human sexuality. That's going to be the primary issue that they're going to come after the church. Because listen, you could preach against other sins and they may go, well, we kind of agree with you, but we don't want to hear you. But as soon as you touch human sexuality, people will shut you down. And that's exactly what's going to come against the church is this persecution where they're going to try to silence pastors and they're going to try to silence Christians. And here's the issue. You're going to have to make a stand. That's why if you're not laying the foundation now, Jesus said in Matthew 7, when the storm comes, if you don't have a solid foundation and your foundation is sand, you're going to get swept away. You have to know that Jesus Christ is the bedrock of your faith. And if you're not building your faith on Jesus Christ, you're going to get blown away. And so we have the woman, that represents Israel. You have the child, that represents Jesus Christ. And then you have the dragon, that represents Satan. There's a fourth player in this spiritual warfare, and that is the angel Michael. Now Michael, in the Bible, is considered a warrior angel. 
Gabriel seems to be one that makes announcements. And by the way, just as a little footnote, notice that the names of these angels all end in E-L. Gabriel, Mike L, and if you read the Apocrypha, you have two other angels, whether or not they're named this, but it seems reasonable, Uriel and Azriel. Now, why L? Because L in Hebrew means one who is like God. And so that's why I love my name, Michael, one who is like God. And so notice what Michael does as player number four in verse seven. And there was war in heaven, and the Greek indicates in verse 7 that the reason why there is war is because Satan picked the fight. He's the one who went on the playground and was the bully, and he picked the fight. Well, you guess what? Michael, being a warrior angel, is not going to back down, and it says Michael and his angels were waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels wage war. Now, this seems somewhat fanciful. When you read this, it almost seems fairy taleish. It's like a story you would read to your children. But remember, the Bible makes it very clear there is an invisible battle going on in the heavenly places that you and I do not see. It is just as real as you and I are sitting here now talking. And so during the tribulation at the middle point, probably, this huge battle is going to go on. Satan is going to pick the fight. We don't know why. And they're going to begin to fight. And in verse 8, and they did not prevail. That is Satan and his demons. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. Do you realize initially when Satan rebelled against God, God cast him to the earth? And there are some commentators that believe the reason why in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it says that the world was formless and void was because when Satan was originally cast out of heaven, he came to the earth and he basically devastated the earth. That's why in Genesis, it says it was formless and void. And what happened on the rest of the days of creation was God reshaped the earth and he recreated it out of the devastation that Satan had created. Well, here... He gets thrown out of heaven again. He was originally thrown out. He had limited access to heaven, but here he gets thrown out permanently. He's going to be barred. And notice verse 9, and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, that refers back to Genesis 3, the snake, who is called the devil. That word in the Greek, diabolos, means slanderer. Whenever you have slander, you have the devil's work going on. Is our media not controlled by the devil? And then Satan, that's the word adversary because he's the one who opposes us. And notice how he traffics in the world. He deceives the whole world. How? False religion, false doctrine. He blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the gospel of Christ. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. This is probably the midpoint of the tribulation. And in verse 13, and when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman, there's Israel, who gave birth to the male child. He's going to do this at the midpoint of the tribulation. When he's thrown out of earth, or thrown out of heaven, and he comes to earth, it's probably at the middle of the tribulation, he realizes that his time on earth is short, and so what he's going to do is he's going to vent his wrath on the Jewish people. You say, how is he going to do that? Well, you remember in Revelation 9, there's going to be a huge amount of demons that are released upon the earth. They're going to wreak havoc, and as I told you, he's going to work through the Antichrist. 
The Antichrist, according to Daniel chapter 9, is going to make a peace treaty with Israel, and ostensibly, he's going to appear that he's Israel's friend. He's going to be Israel's protector the first three and a half years. And then at the middle point, he's going to demand that the world worship him. He's going to turn against the Jewish people. He's going to slaughter many of them. He's going to slaughter many Christians, and he's going to set up an image and demand that the world worship him, and you cannot buy or sell unless you take the mark of the beast. You see, that's exactly how Satan works. He works through the dragon, the seven heads. He's going to work through one of those heads, that final form of world government where the Antichrist is going to rule. And he's going to pour out his wrath. Why? Because he knows his time is short. And by the way, this isn't just during the tribulation. You and I know historically that Satan has always hated the Jewish people. For example, just biblical history. You have in Genesis chapter 6, you remember right before the flood? It says that demons left and they came to earth and took on human form and they tried to have sex with women. You say, why? Genesis 6 doesn't tell us why, but here's why. They wanted to create a hybrid race, a demon-human race, a Rosemary's baby. Why? To pollute the messianic line so Jesus Christ couldn't come. Then you have Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. He tried to destroy all the babies. Then you have Queen Adaliah, who's mentioned in the Old Testament. She was the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, and she took her upon herself as queen of Judah, and you know what happened? It came down to one child, the messianic line, and that child had to be put in hiding for a number of years. He tried to destroy the messianic line there. Then you get to the New Testament. Herod was used by Satan to try to eliminate Jesus. Then when Jesus was in the wilderness, was tempted by the devil. The devil tried to trip Jesus up. It didn't work. Then throughout his ministry, they tried to push Jesus over a cliff, and it didn't work. Then Jesus in the garden was sweating drops of blood, and they tried, Satan tried to destroy Jesus then. It didn't work. Then on the cross, Satan thought he had the victory, but then Jesus rose from the dead. And so throughout history, the Jewish people have been persecuted. And then here are some other things in terms of how the Jews have been persecuted. During the Crusades, they were banished from England. They were banished from France. They were banished from Spain. They were blamed for the Black Death. They were blamed for the assassination of the Russian Tsar. Three million were killed during Joseph Stalin's reign. Hitler killed six million Jews in the 1930s. And listen, today you have Middle Eastern countries that want to wipe Israel off the map. And so, yes, Satan has always historically tried to destroy Christ. And if he can't get to Christ, he's going to go after Christ's offspring, which is you and I. And he's going to attack. And listen, if he's going to do that during the tribulation, he's done it historically. If he's going to do it during the tribulation, he's doing it now. He does not want the church to advance. And you know what? The biggest tool that Satan is using in the American church is lukewarmness, complacency. You know what it is? Materialism. Nothing wrong with materialism in terms of having things, but here's the problem. Material possessions in this country have made us soft. They have made us spiritually weak. We don't like any discomfort, and so we worship at the idol of pleasure. It's hard for us to push the gas pedal to come to church. We want to stay at home and just watch church on television because it's an inconvenience. Or don't ask me, Lord to sacrifice my children's sports 
in order to be devoted to you and fellowshipping with God's people. You see, we have all kinds of excuses in the American church, and we're spiritually lazy. And Satan is using that tool against the American church. Again, it's not wrong to have things and enjoy things. Pleasure is not inherently evil. It's when you and I allow that to control our lives. I was reading about a man who was hiking in Colorado, and he was in an area that was lion territory. I guess he didn't realize it. And he said as he was walking, he said this mountain lion, which weighed about 20 or 30 pounds. Now, 20 or 30 pounds doesn't seem that big. But this mountain lion jumped out and latched itself onto him. He had a backpack. And he began to wrestle with this mountain lion. It tore his face. I think he had to get like 20 stitches. And he said he finally was able to position himself to get behind the mountain lion, and he choked it to death. You know what 1 Peter chapter 5 says? Satan is a roaring lion seeking someone to what? Devour. See, that's the enemy that you and I face. It's an invisible battle. And if you're not standing against him, you're not going to be successful. Well, when Satan ends up being cast out of heaven and he comes to earth at the midpoint of the tribulation, he's going to wreak havoc on the Jewish people. He's going to wreak havoc on Christians. And so God's going to protect this remnant. Now, remember I told you the rebels are going to be purged out. God is going to preserve a remnant from Satan's attack. Notice verse 14, what God's going to do for this remnant. But the two wings of the great eagle. Now, who's this great eagle that God is going to use to protect Israel? Well, we know from Exodus chapter 19, verse 4, that when God delivered Israel out of Egypt, he says in Exodus 19, I delivered you out of Egypt on the great eagle's wings. So it's a metaphor to say God is going to somehow rescue Israel, that remnant, when Satan comes down and he pours out his wrath. Some would say that the two great wings of an eagle refer to an airplane. John didn't have a frame of reference. He didn't know what an airplane was. Is it an airplane? And by the way, the eagle here is not used of the bald eagle that we think of. It's a bird that has a massive wingspan. Maybe it's an airplane. We don't know. Some people think it's going to be America that protects Israel because America, what is our logo or mascot or whatever you want to call it? It's called an eagle. We really don't know. It's metaphorical, figurative language that God is going to nourish his people because it says they were, it says, but the two wings of a great evil were given to the woman, that is Israel, so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished. God's going to take care of the remnant here for a time, times, and half a time. That would be the last three and a half years of the tribulation away from the presence of the serpent. God's going to preserve this remnant. And here's a principle. If God wants you to live, you will survive. If God wants you to live, he will take care of your needs and provide you food. Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You can have a lot of food and die. You can have hardly any food and live if God wants you to live. You see, God's going to preserve this remnant during that time. You say, where? Well, some people think that God's going to send Israel to an area called Petra. Now, if you'll notice here, Petra is today in modern-day Jordan. And as you know, this is an Arab country. Petra is down here. This is a city that's literally encased in rock. In fact, look at the picture here. It's, this is the entrance. You can only get into the city through what they call a seek, 
SIQ, it's very small. And before you turn the slide, there's a whole book written about this particular area. Does anybody know what book in the Old Testament? Obadiah. It's about the Edomites. The Edomites lived in this city, and they lived in the clefts of the rocks. And they were so arrogant because they thought they were unconquerable. This is an area that was impervious to attack. It was difficult to an army to go in there and defeat because it was surrounded by all these rocks. And so God says in the book of Obadiah to Edom, you may live where the eagles are, he says, but I'm going to bring you down. You see, God opposes pride. Notice here the picture this is the city. Can you imagine chiseling this out? And I'm only giving you a little segment of it. Next slide, one other one. You can see it right here. Some people think that God is going to sequester this remnant of Jews, maybe the 144,000, we don't know, during the last half of the tribulation. He says, I'm going to care for you just like eagle's wings. I'm going to take care of you and I'm going to nourish you and provide for you for three and a half years. I don't tend to think it's Petra. Because listen, with technology and the Antichrist, he could just send a missile and blow up that whole area. Could it be America? Could it be Jordan? Wouldn't it be just like God to take Arabs to protect Jews? That would be just like God to do something like that. We really don't know. And notice Satan doesn't like this. He wants these Jews. He wants this remnant. So in verse 15, and the serpent, that is Satan, hurled water like a river out of his mouth, figurative language here, after the woman, so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. Is this some type of warfare going on, some type of army, some type of weaponry? We don't know. Verse 16, but the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon had hurled out of his mouth. Think of the seven heads, and it's spitting out water. Kind of like today, you know, the hippopotamus goes under and it takes water in and then it blows it out. That's the imagery here. And the point of this is to say that Satan is not going to like God preserving this remnant. God purges out two-thirds of the rebels and then he preserves this group and Satan's going to get angry, but he can't get to them. You know, when I read this, I thought instantly about sinkholes in Florida. You ever seen this before? I read about a guy, listen to this, can you imagine this happening to you? He was in Florida, and he's sleeping peacefully in his bedroom, on his big mattress. All of a sudden, there was a sinkhole under his bed. It opens up, and he drops into it 20 feet below the ground. It sounded like a bomb went off, so his family members went in there. When they opened the door, half of his bed, or a little bit of it, was sticking out, and they tried to get in there to find him. Well, that's exactly what's going to happen. God's going to preserve. When this dragon spews out the water, we don't know what it is. God creates this sinkhole. is going to swallow it up. Again, it's figurative language that God is going to protect his people, and he's going to take care of them. And so because Satan can't get to them, notice verse 17, what he does. So the dragon was enraged with the woman. He was enraged with Israel, and he went off to make war with the rest of her children. He couldn't get the remnant, so who is he going to turn against? He's going to turn against other Jews, and he's going to turn against people that get saved during the tribulation. Who are these people? They are the one who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. He's not messing with you if you are a Sunday Christian only. He's not going to mess with you. He don't care. You're not going to cut a swath in his kingdom. But listen, if you make a decision that you're going to follow Jesus, you better buckle up because he's coming after you. 
Well, there's one more player, one final player in this warfare, and that's the saints in heaven. And this is more of a positive note. Notice, if you will, verses 10 through 12. John says this, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down, the one who accuses them before God day and night. As soon as Satan gets cast out of heaven, all of heaven breaks out in a pay on a praise. Why? Because they know that the end is coming when Satan gets thrown down to the earth permanently. And notice what it says here about Satan. He is the accuser of the brethren. You know what Satan does? He accuses us before God because he hates us. Now, is this literal language? Probably not. It's the idea that Satan attacks us. He goes before Christ and he says, look at Mike Nimmer. Why'd you, he's not worthy to go into your presence. Did you see what he said the other day? Do you see what he did? Look at his thought life. Man, he messed up royally. He ate 30 wings. He committed gluttony. Look at him. You know, Satan is the accuser of the brethren, but listen, you and I need to have a defense attorney. And our defense attorney isn't the ones you see on television where you call 444-4444. You see, we have a defense attorney. His name is Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and he is the one who defends us before the accuser of the brethren. Because listen, when you enter into the highest court of the land and God is sitting on his throne, if you do not have Jesus as your defense attorney, listen, you are a sunk duck. You're not going to make it. Jesus is the best attorney to have, and even though he accuses the brethren, you and I are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You and I, Jesus says, not guilty. He is mine, she is mine, not guilty. And that's a reason for us to praise God in verse 11. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb. What does that mean? That means they were saved. They were saved by Jesus Christ's blood. They were washed in the detergent of Christ's blood. And notice not only were they saved, it is because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life, even when faced with death. That speaks of their commitment. And so we see two ways here to overcome Satan. Number one, be saved. You got to be washed in the detergent of Christ's blood. Because I'm going to tell you this, your clothes are stained with sin. And tide is not going to wash it away. You got to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. You got to be cleansed by Christ. And the only way to be cleansed by Christ is you got to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And then notice it says, they did not compromise their testimony. They were willing to die, even if it meant dying for their faith. Why? Because they were committed. You know how you defeat Satan? It's not by going around saying, Satan, I bind you in the name of Jesus. Satan, I bind you in the name of Jesus. Listen, you could throw around those incantations all day. Ultimately, it is commitment to Jesus Christ. And that's how they were victorious. And notice what happened. For this reason, verse 12, rejoice, heaven, and you who dwell in them. Why? Why rejoice? Because Satan has been cast out. But then it says, woe to the earth and the sea. Because the devil has come down to you with great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. You see, the saints in heaven are praising God and worshiping 
Because once Satan is cast out permanently, he doesn't have access to heaven anymore. And the saints in heaven begin to praise God. Now, whether this is literal or it's just a way of telling us that the end of the tribulation is almost over, we don't know. But heaven is going to worship and praise God because Satan is a defeated foe. He is on death row. He is awaiting his execution. And I think all of us are looking forward to that day when Satan, the deceiver, is going to be cast into the lake of fire while he'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so... We are in a spiritual battle, and there are five players in this spiritual battle that we looked at. First of all, there is the woman. She represents who? Say it out loud. Israel. Secondly is the child. He represents who? Jesus. Thirdly is the dragon. The dragon represents who? Satan. Then there is Michael. That represents Michael, the archangel, and the final player is the saints in heaven. They are the ones praising God. Now, Next week, John is going to look at player number six, the beast out of the sea. That's the Antichrist. Why is it the sea? The sea represents the Gentile nations. Antichrist is going to come out of the Gentile nations. And then number seven is the beast of the earth. That is the false prophet. The false prophet is the henchman of the Antichrist. He's going to be the one to promote the Antichrist. He's going to push him. So as we close, let me give you a couple practical suggestions. Since we are in a warfare, how do we overcome Satan? Let me give you these suggestions as we close. Number one, be saved, as I mentioned. Make sure when you leave here, you know you're saved. Secondly, be committed. Stop straddling the fence. Some of you are coming to church and you're straddling the fence. You're just here because it salves your conscience. You're a cultural Christian. Well, you know, I was raised in the church, Pastor Mike. This is what I do. Well, listen, it's good to come to church, but listen carefully. If you come to church and you're not really committed, do you realize you're more accountable to God? Because to whom much is given, much more is required. Number three, walk in the Spirit. Why? Because if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And you know what it says in Ephesians 6? It says, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God. You and I cannot fight this battle in our own strength. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we are dealing with a supernatural foe, which means we have to have supernatural power. And then, of course, number four, know and use the word of God to defeat Satan. You got to know who you are in Christ. You got to stand your authority. You got to understand that you're one with Jesus Christ. His righteousness is your righteousness. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You've got to take the word of God and use it. That's why 1 John chapter 2 says, speaking of young men and young women, they know the word of God, the word of God abides in them, and they've overcome the evil one. What does that mean? It means that you're grounded in the word of God, you're not easily victimized by false teachers, because you know the scripture. And remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness? Where did Satan hit Jesus at his weak point? He hadn't eaten. And he said, hey, if you are the son of God, the Greek says, since you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. See, Satan knows exactly what your weakness is. He knows you have sexual urges, especially if you're young and even older. He'll come after that. He knows your struggle for attention and love. He knows your struggle with certain temptations. He knows where you're weak. He knows where you're vulnerable. And those are the things that will drop in front of you. You've got to use the word of God because Jesus, when he was tempted, he said three times, it is written, it is written, it is written. 
Then you got to pray. Jesus said in the garden of the disciples, watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. Confess and repent of your sin. In other words, keep a short account of sin. Now, I don't know about you, but man, I got to confess my sins all the time. I got to repent of them. It's easy to confess, is it not? Repentance is harder. And then finally, share your faith and serve. You know what that allows you to do? It allows you to stay invigorated. Listen, if you're stale spiritually, if you're in quicksand, if you feel like you're kind of going through this spiritual rut, you're going through the motions. Have you ever been there? I've been there before. There are times where I struggle to get into the Word and pray, and I can't understand why I'm dealing with this resistance and lack of motivation. Sometimes that's a demonic attack. Sometimes it's just the ups and downs of being a Christian. Our emotions fluctuate, but listen carefully. When you start to serve God, when you share your faith, you know what it does? It lights a fire under you. It gets you excited for Jesus. So if you're struggling, Jesus said in Acts 20, it is more blessed to give than what? receive. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for reminding us of this spiritual warfare that we are in. And Father, we tend to forget out of sight, out of mind. And I pray, Father, that we would stay strong in our faith, not fearing Satan, because your word says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. But help us, Lord, to resist the devil. And Lord, as we look at what's going on in the world, we see more pieces of the puzzle being put together. We see a global reset, a push towards one world government, one world religion. We are moving in that direction. So Father, we are living in exciting times and yet sobering times. Father, now is the time for your children to rise up and be the church. God, forgive us. We have been lazy, lukewarm, materialistic, distracted by the things of this age. Father, we repent of that. Forgive the church, Lord, for its idolatry, its immorality, its indifference, its ingratitude. Father, forgive us. We have failed. And Lord, a lot of the problems in our culture in America are due to the church. We've not been salt and light. Forgive us, Lord. Move in revival in our country. Pour out your spirit. And if you're sitting here this morning, if God spoke to you, would you commit yourself afresh to walk with the Lord, to make that commitment, to be in his word, to be in prayer, and to be engaged as a Christian, not to be a Sunday Christian only. Father, motivate your people here at Calvary Chapel and all the churches in Lexington. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.